Over the past year, I've been on a healing adventure. I've spent the past 12 months recovering from brain fog, pain, and chronic fatigue. Like any good adventure story, there have been highs and lows, losses and gains, and an incredible amount of personal growth and lessons learned. This journey has made me a better health practitioner and a more empathetic coach. To add more meaning to my experience, I wanted to create something that would help others to increase their energy, clear their mind, and restore their health. I created the Brain Fog Bible. The Brain Fog Bible is a 47-page guide that covers what I call the low-hanging fruit. It explores the most important areas to be assessed and addressed if you want more from life, but your brain and your body are holding you back. You can grab a copy at brainfogbible.com forward slash download. That's brainfogbible.com forward slash download. I believe one of the most important things that we can do is give ourselves the gift of truly nourishing the soul through time spent in self-inquiry, moments that still the mind, and practices that light us up and allow us to reconnect to the child within. Move, Breathe, Create is a platform that celebrates soul nourishment. Move your body to get out of your head. Breathe to give yourself mental clarity and calm. Create without expectation to fuel your inspiration and delight your senses. Come and join us over at movebreathecreate.com and use the code kombucha for your first month free. I'm looking forward to seeing you inside the community. From a young age, I was passionate about nutrition and helping people with their health. When I started practicing in the field, I realized that physiology and psychology are intimately intertwined. Some of my clients just needed to know what to do to feel better. And many of my clients knew what they should be doing, they just weren't doing it. Underneath it all, unconscious conditioning was getting in the way of their success. This drove me to uplevel my skill set and coach my clients to remove some of their mental roadblocks and reconnect with the wisdom of the body. I learned about the importance of embodiment and harnessing the power of emotions to get more of what you want from life. I started offering intensive one-to-one -one coaching packages and I launched my Grounded Goddess group program. I also wanted to create a free offering to help women understand the power of the mind, body, and emotions. I created the Grounded Goddess Blueprint. The Grounded Goddess Blueprint is a 43-page guide that will help you reconnect with what you want from life and teach you how to build your roadmap to create it. It will help you understand why you often find yourself going round in circles and engaging with self-sabotage. If you feel stuck, overwhelmed, or frustrated with lack of results, you want the Grounded Goddess Blueprint. If you want clarity, understanding, and more success, you want the Grounded Goddess Blueprint. Just go over to groundedgoddess.co.uk forward slash blueprint and grab your copy. That's groundedgoddess.co.uk forward slash blueprint. Hi, I'm Shay, and welcome to Kombucha and Color. Kombucha and Color is a weekly podcast hosted by me, Shay Dyer, a yoga teacher and creative graphic designer, and Anna Marsh, a functional medicine practitioner and women's health coach with a love of all things health and fitness. 
This podcast is here to inspire women to embrace health and live life bright. You can find more about me, Shay, at shaydyer.com. You can find out more about me, Anna, at annamarshnutrition.co.uk. And each week we will be bringing you inspiring content for a healthier and happier mind, body, heart, and soul. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Kombucha and Color. It's Shay here, and I have an exciting guest on the show today. She's actually one of my yoga students who I often see in class, and I'm so excited to have her on the show today. She's going to be talking about all things nature and allotment and growing and being close into nature and giving us some tips and tools and things that we can use. So welcome to the show, Lizzie Beaver. Hello. Thanks for having me. (laughs) So Lizzie runs an Instagram account called Plot and Lane, and it's a really beautiful account filled with lots of her allotment adventures and all her foraging adventures and the things that she gathers and the recipes that she makes with all her things that she finds. So she's going to chat to us about that. So before we get into the kind of tools and tips, can you explain to us how you got into this way of living and your kind of journey into having your own allotment and your pro- your path to get here? Yes. So starting really at the beginning, I graduated from natural sciences about 10 years ago, <laughs> quite a while. <laughs> and really up until a year ago, I was working in a very corporate environment and I decided to take some time out to really pursue my curiosity and some creative projects. And through doing that, I've come to realize that really having that connection with nature is what I want to be driving my life and perhaps where I find that sense of purpose. So the presence of nature and sort of foraging, and I spend quite a lot of time going out and foraging for things in my local park and lanes, which hence the name of my Instagram account. The plot is where we grow our veg and the lane is where we go and forage for stuff. And yeah, the art and prints that I create are all about celebrating the small, wild, perhaps unnoticed or undernoticed aspects of the world around us. And the food I cook day to day for my blog and ultimately what I hope will become regular supper clubs at some point, COVID permitting, um, is about using the best of what's in season. So the origin of it really is I've grown up in a city pretty much all of my life. So I lived in Nottingham before I moved to London. And we used to go and visit my grandma who lives in rural Shropshire. She's got a beautiful little cottage and just things like going blackberry picking with her. And she had a vegetable garden and a beautiful apple tree. And like every year we'd get apples. And just as a child growing up with that sort of not part of my everyday life, but something that we did as a really special thing, just gave it that sense of meaning in my life right from an early age. And so when I did start to take that time out, from corporate life, spending that time in nature and having really a sense of nostalgia really brought all that back. So so that's really probably where that's come from earlier in my life. And then what do you say for, there's something obviously as you're speaking about this and you said when you'd finished your natural sciences degree and you were in the corporate world, there was something that drew you to being back in nature. Why do you think it's so important for us to be connected to nature and for us to find that connection to the natural world? I think there's something, and especially to to the listeners in this audience, like there's something that draws us to wanting to be in nature, but we maybe don't think about it or we don't connect to it. So in your experience, what draws you to it? Why do you think it's important? So I think there's probably little doubt in anybody's mind listening about the positive impact of nature on our emotional, psychological well-being. And sort of from my science background as well, there's there's studies demonstrating those who live in urban environments have a higher risk of mental health issues. You know, that that could be put down to the likelihood of having a stressful job. But actually, even within those urban environments, 
there's evidence that living in a flat, for example, that overlooks a tree has benefits compared to facing a brick wall. So Lucy Jones's book, Losing Eden, goes into really great detail on a range of research like this. So I can recommend giving that a read if anyone's interested in delving a bit deeper. I found her book fascinating. She talks about research into certain bacteria in soil that can stimulate the brain to create serotonin as part of our immune response. Um, And also how we can increase the diversity of our gut microbes by being outdoors more because there's just a bigger diversity. There's also evidence that two hours in a forest can lower blood cytokine levels, which are involved in inflammation and are a biomarker for depression. So it's sort of linking that sort of what we know with some of the science that's emerging behind that. And really, like if you think in terms of our evolutionary history, we've evolved living fully immersed in our natural surroundings for a lot longer than we've been in these increasingly urbanized environments where we've become displaced from nature. So I imagine that on some deeper level, there's a sense of belonging to nature that as we get more disconnected is going to impact us more greatly. Mm. And that's not necessarily based in hard science, but I think it stands to reason. It certainly makes sense to me that our bodies benefit when we eat foods in season. That's probably when you're eating food that's at its best, it's at its full complement of nutrition and flavor. In some cases, it's cheaper to get hold of when it's in season. And I think if you look at the complement of nutrients that are found in more autumn and winter season ingredients, they're going to align more closely with what our bodies need at that time. So the example that I'm thinking there is if you think of foods that are high in vitamin C, you're probably going to think of things like citrus, kale, broccoli. To me as a forager, I think of rose hips as well. They're all winter ingredients. I find that really interesting as Mm, winter is prime time for our bodies to need to keep our cells in good working order. And vitamin C is, you know, obviously really important in that. Yeah, amazing. And I just think about what you're saying in terms of our connection to nature from a movement perspective is that as we've come out of living in such a close proximity to nature, you know, we would have been climbing up mountains and over rugged pathways. And there's like a proprioception that happens through the soles of the feet that we're losing out on these days because we walk in flat surfaces and flat shoes on flat pavements. Mm -hmm. We are not having to climb. We're not having to turn. We're not having to reach like even cars as they've developed, you know, We are now even losing the ability to turn our heads back to look at the traffic behind us because we've got these cars which have screens in front of them and cameras that are viewing the back and we're limiting, limiting our range of movement. And I think that's exactly the same for our interaction with nature as a whole. And I think, you know, as you were speaking about uh, Lucy Jones's book, like what impact is that having on the psychological, emotional aspect of ourselves and us as a collective? So it's so interesting So tell us more about this idea of seasonal eating and getting in touch with what is good for our bodies at this particular time. Yeah, so I guess the way I think about it is that eating is probably one of the most frequent things we do other than breathing. So starting to align some or most of what we eat with the seasons is a great way to build an awareness and sense of connection by literally what we put into our bodies. So yeah, a question I get all the time is, how do I learn what's in season? How do I buy things that are seasonal? There are some great online resources. They'll change depending on where you are in the world, of course. The one I refer to a lot from a UK perspective is eattheseasons.co.uk. So they've organized their content in a really neat way. So you can look up a month and see what's in season for October. You can also view each ingredient individually and learn which months that's in season, as well as loads of tips for buying, preparing it. So I definitely recommend that. And a lot of what I share on my blog at plotandlane.com and I've got a monthly newsletter as well is about what's in season what we're growing on our allotment 
And as you said, you know, we're sharing recipes of how to use the seasonal ingredients too. So I'll shamelessly plug that while I'm here. <laughs> uh, personally, growing my own veg has been a really valuable way of learning about seasonal food. So I know that's not something that's available to everyone. I have an allotment. So that's a great way for me as the London resident to be able to get out into some green space. But yeah, I know that that's not something that everybody has. But you could see if there's a seasonal veg delivery available near you. You know, local farms are doing a lot of that at the moment or something like Riverford or perhaps as a farmer's market. You know, they can help you gauge what's in season. You can chat to the market stall holders, learn directly from them. Yeah, there's I was just thinking I could I could recommend on it as well if that's you know, that's yeah. helpful. Well, I was just thinking as you were talking about, you know, connecting to what's in season, it almost automatically not forces you, but encourages you to look at the local farmers and the local growers and the things that are really close to you, as opposed to going into a big Sainsbury's or a Tesco's where you can literally find anything all the time, the entire way through the year, because they're just getting in and hauling in from all over the world without actually actually what is growing here right now and I think that's a beautiful way of kind of bringing everything back to local and what's important to be able to support small businesses in that way so I also love that connection as well so especially as we're going into in England at least going into lockdown 2.0 you know farmers markets are likely to still be running obviously it depends on on where you are but supporting them at the moment is really important as well Mm, 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 mm. So then what about your allotment journey? Did you have like, when you first set up your allotment, were you like, okay, now I know exactly what to do. What kind of research did you have to do to be able to have a viable set of vegetables come out? Because I can imagine like there's a lot of failures and learnings and growth that come from starting a project like that. How long have you had an allotment and what were those first steps to creating it like? So we've had our allotment just over a year, coming up to a year and a half in December. And we were waiting for it probably for about a year as well. So actually, wow. you know, allotments are known for having quite a long waiting list, but that was a lot quicker than we thought it was going to be. And before that, I mean, we've been living in London pretty much since graduating from university. So we've never had a huge amount of outdoor space, but I've always tried to grow things in pots like tomatoes. So there were a few things that I had a bit of experience with, but not masses. So then, it, yeah, it was a bit of a jump to go from things in pots on on a tiny little outdoor bit of concrete versus having, <laughs> this, um, having this allotment plot. But really, it's it's just been a case of trial and error for us. So there was a bit of planning in terms of like working out how to best use the space. We wanted to do crop rotation, so working out what crops are going to be good for moving around like that and which need to stay in the same bed. So things like raspberries will stay and strawberries will stay in the same place. So there was a bit of learning as you plan. And then the rest was just plant some seeds and see what happens. Winging it. Um, <laughs> yeah, a little bit. So the good news is a lot more has gone well than I thought. Oh, with well, that that's positive. Like, it is easier that like, you know, there's, there is a lot of information out there on how to grow stuff and tips for growing things and cutting things in the right places at the right time but really it's not as complicated as as we make out so if anyone is thinking of having a go just have a go in some parts like it's it's not some things will work some things won't we had a a bit of a phase in the summer where things were getting eaten by slugs and various other pests but mostly things have actually grown pretty well 
And what is on your allotment at the moment? What is currently in bloom or in ready to bloom? So flower plant, what is the right terminology? So this is sort of the tail end of the main bit of the growing season. So we've got the end of things like pumpkins, squashes, leeks, spring onions. Our runner beans are still going pretty strong. And we're growing a few flowers as well, just because, you know, you've got to have flowers. Um, (laughs) The dahlias keep going for pretty much forever. Yeah, and then things that are sort of starting to come in now are things like Brussels sprouts, kale we've got a pretty good good amount of fennel and then we're hoping to try and keep i want to get better at sort of successional planting so that we get a good crop of things over the winter when traditionally it's a much slower slower time but there are things that that go on into the winter so parsnips will be a month or so maybe a couple of months time the kale hopefully should just keep going purple sprouting broccoli hopefully we'll have some of that at the start of the next year so Amazing. fingers crossed for like a, a steady a steady flow of things into the winter and so what do you ever find that when you have all these crops that come in that it feels like oh my gosh now I've got like a hundred parsnips and I don't know what to do with them or what are the ways that you kind of preserve them or do you share them out with other people on their allotment like how does that work or do you feel like actually it's it's sustainable for what you are wanting to achieve out of it in terms of it's feeding you and your husband or How does that work? So that is another area where a lot of learning has been happening. (laughs) Um, So for things like tomatoes and the beans that we've had, we've had a fairly steady sort of we'll we'll harvest them every few days and have enough for that time and, and not too much. There's definitely been times where we've had a glut. So, for example, courgettes. Our courgettes went absolutely mental this year. Um, <laughs> You're like, so I never I was, want to see another courgette. <laughs> I know, I was making all sorts of stuff, like everything with courgette. I made courgette cake. I made, made I tried to make courgette jam. I was <laughs> giving courgettes out to my family. And I think we might have a similar situation with pumpkins because they're all, not only have we got quite a few of them, but they're absolutely massive. So that's going to be fun. <laughs> testing my creativity for sure yeah yeah okay so if so just based on that what would you say are the easiest things for people to grow or the most like rewarding because I think it can be quite demotivating if you put all this time and effort into it and then you're like oh I've got one tomato where it's like oh my gosh I've got the surplus what can I do with it and how can I share it or how can I be creative with it so I think that the things I would recommend it it does depend on the kind of space that you have I think if you've got a decent amount of space then growing things like pumpkins and courgettes they do like to get very big but you can end up with a really good selection of them and, and also you can get different types so the ones that the variety that we had in of courgettes this year was a really big sort of marrow type you can get the little salad ones that are probably <laughs> a bit more manageable um, <laughs> if you don't have that kind of space then if for example if you're growing things in pots then tomatoes generally do really well if you get a a good variety ones that spring to mind are things like moneymaker alicante is a pretty good one or cherry tomatoes tend to do fairly well then you can as long as you've got a cane in the pot that they can grow up and you keep attaching it and make sure that the tomatoes aren't getting too heavy that they're going to fall off so string them up to to the cane then i've always found those fairly straightforward to grow and they're quite rewarding because you get these lovely trusses of of tomatoes 
Amazing. And one that, that was a bit of a surprise for me this year, I've, I've grown dwarf French beans for the first time. So they're just wow. like the, the green beans and they're really, it says it in the name, right? They're a dwarf plant. So they're really quite straightforward to grow in a pot, but you get so many beans from them. So they've been great. So I think I'd recommend that one as well for anyone who's mm. got a little less space. Mm. And what would you say is the kind of time investment that you spend with your allotment? Because the people are saying, oh, you know, I'd love to do this. But like the thought of now traveling to an allotment and going and setting it up and like there is quite a time investment. But I think also at the same time, it's that time and nature that's so important that actually it's part of the benefit of doing it is actually taking the time to be out of nature, get your hands dirty and yeah, connect back to the earth. Yeah, absolutely. Like that was one of the things that when we first got it, I was like, I know I love the idea of this, but am I going to love the actual going there and having this responsibility to to look after it? And there's, it, it does depend on the state that the plot's in when you first get it. So we weren't the luckiest when we got ours. We had a lot of work to do improving the soil. There were like rusty nails everywhere in oh, the soil. Goodness. I don't know why, but um, that just meant that we we needed to be a bit more thorough in cleaning those out just to set ourselves up properly. And we've built raised beds and, and things like that, but you don't really have to do that. So it sort of depends on, yeah, how much work you have to do at the offset, whether there's raised beds already there or if you're putting those in yourself. And so there'll be a, a sort of outset of work at the start. But then once it's going, it's really keeping on top of weeds and harvesting stuff and so for us probably the busiest time was during the summer when it was there wasn't a lot of rain so we were there most days watering but that's just sort of pop down for 10 minutes to water and then head home mm. Mm. gosh okay and so then tell us about your idea of eating seasonally and what you do in terms of the foods that you create and the recipes that you make what are some of your top um, ideas and tips for your pumpkin seasons that are coming in now? Mm. So I guess my my recipes are generally quite simple because I don't want to spend hours necessarily every time over, over cooking something. I do enjoy that. But really, I think it's it's more about celebrating the simplicity of the ingredients. So I try to combine that, you know, with the foraged ingredients that I find as well, because that's just as seasonal to me in terms of what I tend to be eating. So for pumpkin season, well, or for this this season generally, pumpkin's the obvious abundant vegetable at the moment. There's also mushrooms about, mushrooms tend to have like, depending on the type, you can find mushrooms probably throughout the year, but autumn's definitely a pretty abundant time for them because you get a lot more rainfall which is you know what they like and then there's things like apples pears and we're coming into quince season so there's some like really nice fruits taking us into into the autumn and the winter pumpkins and squashes I love to roast them and have them as they are you know they're great in a curry they're great in a soup but given the amount that we have this year I'm definitely going to be making some purees to try out some sweet recipes puree can be frozen and then you can get it out throughout the winter when you want to make something like a soup or a or a sweet dish mushrooms fairly straightforward right you, you can saute them and top them pretty much put them on anything you can make a risotto have some sprinkled on top of a soup 
And then apples, what have I been using apples for? All sorts, like cooking them off with some cider to get a really nice, like, and some some cinnamon, maybe a bit of ginger to get a really nice spice, kind of soften them up a little bit. And then you can have those with yogurt. You can have those in a crumble. I've been putting a lot of apples into chutneys as well. Like chutney is a amazing a big deal in a beaver household (laughs) (laughs) or you're preserving that you're doing (laughs) so do you find that the vegetable obviously like there's so much more love and attention and consciousness that has gone into the vegetables and things that you are growing yourself do you find that it tastes different to the ones in store or do you not really have food from store really I think it does I think because you can choose the variety that you're growing as well they're going to, things like tomatoes, for example, they're going to differ a lot depending on the variety that you've got. The flavor is going to be completely different. You can choose when you pick it. You're picking it when it's exactly how you want it to be. And it, they're varieties that don't necessarily need to have been bred to ship long distances. You know, you can, can have a variety that's going to not last that long. But if you're picking it fresh off the vine and then you're eating it straight away, it doesn't need to survive that long. So, yeah, I think, and, and there's things that, I I definitely think a difference. So cucumbers fresh off the plant are going to be really crisp, really sweet. I, mm. I don't think they're anything like anything you can get in a supermarket. Yeah. But that, there's probably some amount of bias there as well. But Yeah, because all the love and effort that has gone into it is like, yeah, this is really delicious. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, okay, so tell me now, you've mentioned a few times about pots and having things if you don't have a lot of space. So let's say somebody's listening and they're like, oh, I live in this really tiny little flat. What can I do? I really like the sound of this connecting to nature and getting a little bit more organic with the food that I eat. Because as you're speaking, what I'm, I'm hearing as well is that there's a lot more consciousness about what we choose to eat when you eat from an allotment because you're seeing the, the vegetables and the foods that are coming in and you have to consciously plan, okay, I'm going to have this to eat because this is coming in season as opposed to just mindlessly walking through a shop and picking what's on the shelf because it's there. So somebody who wants to connect to that way of eating and to start to build this for themselves but doesn't have a lot of space, what are the things that they would need to get started? I think if you've got any outdoor space, so if you've got a little balcony, if you've got space by your front door to have a couple of pots, tomatoes are great. They do really well in pots, dwarf beans, like I said. So what you'd need to get started is have a look at what kind of variety you might want to try. There are dwarf varieties available for tomatoes as well that do particularly well in containers. And a good place to start, aside from just searching on the internet, Instagram's actually a really good place for inspiration and advice from other people. So there's a couple of accounts that are really great, I think, for just inspiration but also like I'm sure if you reach out to them they'd help you so there's the homegrown garden and the Essex allotment I love his account he's just hilarious there's a lot of experience but also they've they've both started from the ground up but I think Instagram is just there's a great community of people at all different sort of levels so you've got people who have massive amounts of space and are growing loads of stuff and then there's people who have tiny gardens but are sharing what they're doing, what's worked for them. So that's definitely worth looking at. And is there a place, like let's say you have, you just have like a tiny little windowsill that you're needing to fill with plants. Like is there specific things in terms of where the lighting needs to be and the sunlight or is it plant specific? Is that something that you would find out if you went to a garden center or you just do a little bit of research online? So normally when you buy 
either seeds or you can buy little plants. It will tell you how much sun they need. Most things, tomatoes especially, will probably want a decent amount of sunlight hours during the day, especially when, when they're fruiting so that they can ripen. For things like beans, it's less of an issue. So depending, yeah, depending on how much light you've got in that space will dictate what you can grow. But there will be something that you can grow even in shade. Things like brassicas, so like cabbages and cabbagey things. Kale can cope a bit better with shade. Okay, amazing. And so tell us now about your silver prints that you did. How did that um, kind of be as an offshoot of what you're doing and how does it relate to what you're doing if it does? And tell us a little bit about the name that you chose for that. Yeah, so I've always been into drawing things, art, definitely as a hobby for a very long time. Um, My dad always used to take us out sketching. And for me, especially this year, it's been a way to experience nature that bit more deeply. To draw something, you have to look at something properly. You know, you have to spend time with it and you have to really understand the nooks and crannies of a mushroom, for example. And so it was already, so I was working on some like line illustrations just just to, as a bit of a kind of nature journaling practice, especially in lockdown. And my sister-in-law bought me a lino printing kit for my birthday, which was in May. And I had a go with it and just absolutely loved doing it, the process of it, the effect that you get from it and was pretty much hooked from day one. So that kind of became the medium that I was using for that creative practice. And really that's that snowballed into starting to sell it on my little Etsy shop that I just launched. And so I think in a way it links in with mainly with the foraging side of things because I think I've you know, more likely to be spending more time with those kind of wild plants that that have become the focus of what I've been creating art about. Yeah, so it's risen out of that. And and what I hope that it does is that if if people have a print in their home, that it is bringing a, a little bit of nature into into their home, something that perhaps they, when they next go out on a walk, might see a bit more of. That's what I'm trying to do with that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think what 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 I'm hearing as well is that it's this whole concept of slowing down because, you know, the allotment I can imagine and that that growing your own vegetables and things like that really teaches you this process of patience. And, you know, it's not just this immediate thing where you go into the shop and you pick something off the shelf because it's there and it's ready to go. But it's this idea of, okay, I've got to work to get this and I've got to wait. And I've, there's this process of like slowing down that I have to take. It, it comes over time. And I think that's the same with what I'm hearing is like when you're going out and you're really slowing down to look at the form of the mushroom and how does it look and what are the outlines? And it's that process again of slowing down to be able to really take it all in. So I think they they work so well together in this idea of taking a step back, coming back to your breath, like feeling like you're really just taking that moment to ground yourself through these different practices that you do. So have you noticed since doing the allotment or being out in nature like in this way, have you noticed a change within yourself in terms of how you live and and experience the world? Yeah, a hundred percent. Definitely having the allotment. So there's a sense of slowing down, but also that nurturing. You know, when mm. you're packing the soil around a little seedling and you're watering it and you're making sure that it's got the best chances and there is something that develops a connection, I think, with what you're growing. 
in a way and and the same with going out and you know when you're on a walk and you're looking out for things to draw it's slowing down and it's having that effect on your body but it's also again about that connection with the things around you I don't know if that sounds a little woo but this is a woo woo place you're welcome (laughs) I feel like I'm safe saying that um but that there is more than just what I'm doing in my day-to-day there's all of these things around that are having their own very different lives and I think also like I can imagine that the more you get into this way of growing your own vegetables and tending to the earth in that way like you know you say packing that soil around a seedling it kind of cultivates this feeling of how else can I look after this earth? How else can I bring about the sense of where am I environmentally unfriendly to things and what can I do? I'm doing something here to reduce packaging. Because I mean, even that is just like, if you go into a supermarket, every single vegetable that you buy just about is wrapped in something. Mm. Whereas here you're taking it straight from the earth and you're like, well, I can make this change to really limit my plastic in this way. How can I filter that into other areas of my life. So have you found that as well for yourself? Yeah, definitely. There's that phrase, like you only protect what you love. There's definitely a lot of, a lot of love that has developed over having the allotment and, and getting out and doing more foraging. And that sense of connection that you develop. It, yeah, it's definitely made me think about how much plastic we use at home. Also where we get other foods from, you know, where are we sourcing other ingredients that we're not able to grow? And is there a way of supporting local, more sustainable methods of farming in that way? And yeah, I think it's made me think a lot more about that. I won't say that it's been easy to make sort of overnight huge sweeping changes, but I think you can't help but make make changes where you know that that you can. (laughs) Does that make sense? mm, Yeah, it gives you like an opening to another way. Yeah. And then just with your foraging, is that something that you did a course on or how do you know that you're going to go through a hedge and not pick up something that's completely poisonous and accidentally kill yourself? Or do you, did you, do you have like a book or do you go with a guide or how did you start getting into that um, side of it? So that goes all the way back to weekends with my grandma picking blackberries. So that's foraging and it's probably the most easiest and most familiar to a lot of people. And I think that's, you know, you start from that. And then my husband's family always used to go picking slows in the, the lanes around where, where his family live. So that was another sort of, well, you can pick those too. And gradually, I think you start with the easy things like blackberries, slows, rose hips are really easy to identify. And for me, it was just, it was more from that curiously looking at staring at hedgerows when we were out on walks and thinking I wonder what else in here is is edible or is useful in some way and like elderflowers elderberries were probably some of the first things that I was picking nettles you know these are things that are really familiar and doing a bit of double checking on the identification and then being like no I'm pretty confident that I know what that is since then with getting into it a bit more I've got a few books that I use for identification of, of things that are a bit more tricky. So there's there's certain plant families where they're quite easy to identify. And even if you get it wrong, you're not going to hurt yourself. But there are other families where you, you can go seriously wrong and there are some quite dangerous plants. So it's definitely something that I take quite good care about making sure that I'm identifying things properly. There's a general rule of you check with three different sources and probably none of those being 
an image search online. (laughs) Don't trust the internet. (laughs) Books and foraging guides. So yeah, there's no like course that I've been on, but it's just a mixture of like just being really curious about what's around me, having some books that I refer to. There's some, again, Instagram, there's loads of foragers that share what they do and there's some good foraging guides out there. And yeah, going on walks with, with an expert to to teach you something you might not already know so particularly with mushrooms that's one where I've Mm. spent time with with people who really know what they're doing yeah and where where do you go foraging because I'm is it a place where you can just oh you see anything and you're allowed to take it or does that maybe particularly belong to somebody else or how would you get started could I just go into Wimbledon Common and walk around and see what I find or is there a certain places that are okay this is a foraging zone or something like that So it will depend on where you are. So it's worth checking with most parks. If it's something like Wimbledon Common, they've got a a section on foraging on their website that you can check what their rules are. Most places in England and probably probably across the UK, um, if it's public land or publicly accessible land, you're allowed to forage as long as you're not uprooting a plant. There are some protected plants that you can't pick, for example, bluebells are there. You're not meant to pick those at all to protect them. But generally, if you're not uprooting a plant, it's probably fair game as long as you're not on private land. If you're on private land, you need permission. And that's all assuming that you're not doing it for a commercial reason. So if you're just picking mm-hmm. for yourself, that means that there's a lot of space available for, for foraging. London gets a bit tricky with some of, the, if it's a royal park, if it's one of the royal parks, I don't think you're allowed to forage at all. Wimbledon and Putney Commons, you're allowed to forage as long as you're not picking mushrooms. You need a permit to pick mushrooms okay. to protect those those species. I know the New Forest has specific rules around foraging as well, but they're generally fairly easy to find on their websites. Okay, amazing. So is there anything else that you want to add about your prints? Or where, let's, let's first ask, where do you see this going? Obviously, covid is putting a little halt on everything yeah. um, at the moment. But we, you spoke a little bit in the beginning about this idea of supper clubs. So what is your vision for where this goes forward? So yeah, COVID permitting, what I really hope is that I will be able to host supper clubs starting in London, but you know, obviously depending on where life goes, they could end up being outside of London as well. But starting off in London, celebrating seasonal food. So bringing out things that either are just quintessentially that season or things that maybe aren't as well known or aren't as well used or using the whole of a plant. So that's that's the kind of cooking that I that I really love to do and would really love to to share in that way and kind of it's a creative outlet for me, but also like the reason I like supper clubs is that it it's bringing that sense of community that you don't necessarily get with a, a booking at a restaurant. Mm. And the subclubs that I've been to have definitely fostered that kind of environment. And, you know, you you meet people that you wouldn't have necessarily met before who are probably interested in similar things to you if they've gone to that particular event. So hopefully that will take off at some point in the future. But for now, the blog is definitely still still going. So I'm sharing the recipes there if people want to try and recreate some of them at home. Amazing, amazing. So is there anything else that you want to share about um, any tips or anything that you want to um, give to encouragement to people? Anything you want to share about your work? Um, anything else that you feel you want to put in? So I think the one thing I'll say is that there's very little that you need to know. 
So to get out and immerse yourself in nature, you don't need to know how to do anything other than putting on shoes and a coat. Mm -hmm. So it's understandable to think you might need to know all the names of the trees or recognize birds by their bird calls in order to really be connecting with nature. But that's that's nonsense. All you need to use is the senses that are available to you and expose yourself to nature as it is. So what's the difference in knowing that a robin's called a robin versus appreciating this beautiful inquisitive bird that's got this bright red breast that's hopping around you in the middle of winter? Like what? So yeah, the bottom line is there's, there's very little you need to know to get out, but it's going to be a huge benefit to you, even in these winter months where it might seem strange that we're talking about this now as we're heading into lockdown, the weather's getting cooler, the days are shorter. It's been raining. I mean, it's pretty, it's sunny today, but it's been raining pretty much constantly every day so far for the last couple of weeks. We're going to be in lockdown from tomorrow as we're recording this. So we're not given the usual distractions that we'd normally have, but I think it's still entirely possible to get out into nature at this time of year. You know, when we were in lockdown before, it was the spring, we were watching buds emerging, you know, hearing birdsong, feeling the weather getting warmer, feeling that sense of opening that I think gave people a lot of hope. Now might feel like the opposite of that, but I, but I really don't think it is. There's a lot to be seen, you know, going out for a walk into nature and thinking rather than just walking around and it's, you know, maybe it's going to rain and I'm a bit miserable, there's a bit of mud around, thinking like what I like to do is go through each of your senses one by one. Like what is it that I can see? What is it that I can hear? You know, can I hear birds? Can I hear the breeze? What can I smell? You know, going, going through them one by one like that, there's still a huge amount of benefit to our bodies for doing that. Yeah, I started Plot and Lane with the intention of bringing people, including myself, closer to nature in order to connect more deeply with our families, our communities, ourselves. And it's interesting that the only way that a lot of us can do that at the moment is outdoors. So... I really hope that this has been helpful to anyone listening. Yeah, I think it has. And I think it's what you're speaking to a lot is this idea of presence and just being, you know, when you're taking the whole world into your senses, especially when things are feeling overwhelming and we're going into lockdown, as you say, like there's this beauty in being able to just be present, like feel your feet on the ground, smell what's around you. What are you tasting? What are you like? There's that sensory input that gives you that sense of landing in your body, which I think is so important in these times. Even if so that is mud and rain. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah. Be just as present with mud and rain and, and feel the, the beauty in that just as much yeah. as if it's sunny. Yeah, absolutely. I love it, love it, love it. Well, thank you so much for sharing with us. I'm going to grab all of your links for Plot and Lane, for Silver Prince, and for some of those books that you have recommended when people um, are looking back on this episode and maybe wanting to have a little go at this. They can reference those books that you've shared, and then I'm sure they can also connect with you on Instagram and you can share your tips with them if they feel they have something to ask you. So thank you so much for sharing. Thank you so much for having me. I've loved it. We'll see you again soon. Thank you for listening to another episode of Kombucha and Color. If you have enjoyed or been inspired by our conversations today, please leave a five-star review on Stitcher or iTunes. Don't forget to share with friends and family. This will help other women find inspiration to live life bright. We'd love to connect with you on social media. Come find me, Shay, by searching Shay Dyer Yoga on Facebook or Instagram. You can find me, Anna, by searching Anna Marsh on Facebook or Instagram. And remember, you can always refer to the links in the show notes. See you next week.
If you have enjoyed our conversation today and you're curious about what breathwork can do for you, I would love to invite you to join Sacred Sky, the six-week breathwork course which starts on the 15th of November. If you resonate with the terms highly sensitive or empath, you will know that the busyness of daily life can often leave you feeling clouded and overwhelmed by the energy of others. It is really important to establish good energetic boundaries and grounding practices that help you blow away the layers of murky energy that leave the sense of stuckness in your body. Breathwork is one of my go-to practices for keeping my energy clean and clear and coming back to my home frequency. When I am connected to my body and my energy, I can easily tell when people, places, and things are pulling me outside of myself. Sacred Sky is a six-week breathwork journey where you will learn to become your own healer, to shift your stuckness, your stagnant energy, and connect to your intuition. If you'd like to join me on this journey, you can join by going to Sacred Sky, or one word, forward slash breathwork. You can find this link in the show notes of this podcast, or feel free to reach out to me on social media if you're struggling to access the page to register. Registration ends on the 13th of November, and there are various rates available to suit different budgets, but everybody receives the same service. I'm really looking forward to seeing you in our Sacred Sky journey.